you may have thought or been told that Christmas is about a baby in a manger. It's not. Christmas is about the coming of a Savior. The prophecies of old, the reason that they were so confusing to the Jews of Jesus' time is because they told of a champion. They told of a rescuer, of a redeemer who would come and make war on injustice. So the people expected something completely different than a tiny little dependent baby born in a barn. That didn't make any sense to them. As we walk through this today, we're going to see... Uh, we're going to see why this is important to us. As we go through the four weeks of Advent leading up to Christmas Day, uh, we don't have services on Christmas Day, but we do have our Christmas Eve service. Tonight we will start with our community service uh, that is hosted by the River Valley Ministerial Association. In case you missed it in the announcements, it's at 6 o'clock tonight at St. John's Congregation in Three Oaks, which is between Speedway and the Catholic Church on US 12. Pretty easy to find. Um, this is actually their last service as they are uh, closing their, their ministry. But as we do this there tonight, unlike here, there will be a collection taken uh, for the RVMA Benevolence Fund. It's used to help uh, folks who are traveling through and, and uh, have needs that they have to, to get met. Um, so that's what that collection tonight will be for. And, and we will pass a plate there, even though we don't do that here. Anyway, as we walk through the, this, uh, these weeks of Advent, there are four different things that we'll be looking at. And we'll light a candle to remind us of each of them. And that center candle, the white candle, that pure white reminds us of Christ. That's the Christ candle. Each of these weeks we'll talk about why the Savior came. This week we see that Jesus came to save us because we could not save ourselves. Next week we'll talk about the idea that Jesus came to save us because God keeps His promises. Then we'll speak of Jesus came to save us because He wants to satisfy our longings. And we'll see lastly that Jesus came to save us because God's sovereign plan is perfect. Today, our core reality is that Jesus came to save us because we could not save ourselves. <clears throat> As we look at the entire Christmas story, we get fixated on the parts that tell story well. Angels, shepherds, we even make things up like the story of the donkey or the little drummer boy. And all these little things. And we end up somehow getting into stories about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman and jolly old St. Nicholas. And there's nothing wrong with engaging, <coughs> pardon me, engaging our fantasy, engaging the fun and beauty and tradition and nostalgia of a holiday. But we must never forget why we have the holiday. We are not celebrating a dude who lives at the North Pole. He is here to help us celebrate Jesus. We are not here to celebrate an outcast reindeer who makes good. However, Jesus came for the outcast. We're not here to celebrate some snowman with a magic hat who was dead and inanimate but came to life one day. And yet, that's kind of our story. 
if we're in Christ, we were dead. But because of him, we've come to life. Today, as we go through this, understand that Jesus came to save us because we could not save ourselves. That's our need. Say that with me. Jesus came to save us because we could not save ourselves. We're going to see some, some different parts of this as we walk through the nature of the gospel in the Advent. Our title today is God and Sinners Reconciled. As we just sang in that great well-known, uh, that great well-known carol written by the, the, probably the most famous hymn writer of all, Charles Wesley. I found out this just a few weeks ago from my wife that... Uh, after Wesley wrote this, they changed the words to it. He didn't actually write Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It was, I don't know, the Welkin saying some English term that I don't even, I'm not familiar with. But he didn't like it. So even though he wrote this great carol, he never sang or played it again after that. He wouldn't have any part of it. He said that the Bible doesn't talk about angels singing. They're just telling the glory of God. But it's interesting to me that as we sing these old carols that we're so familiar with, we fixate on the angels. The point is what the angels were saying. The point is the message they were proclaiming that God and sinners are reconciled in Christ. In the beauty of this fantastic story, which we'll read in a later week in Luke 2. We'll actually read it tonight if you're at the community service. In the story of Luke 2, the angels come and they proclaim peace, goodwill to men on whom God's favor rests. All of this peace is made possible by Jesus. It's made necessary by us. There's an old Reformed adage that the only thing you and I contribute to our salvation is its necessity. We contribute the sin that separates us from God. The entire focus of this today is that we are separated from God and cannot save ourselves. So as we go through this Advent season, whatever else you're doing, if you're singing jingle bells or eating cookies and pie, I will probably be eating a lot of cookies and pie. It's a commitment I've made. When you're hanging the stockings and putting up trees and, and ornaments. Remember, this is not just a fun little holiday. This is the God of creation fixing the problem that you and I create. As we go through this, we're going to take a look at God's purpose, God's person, our purpose, our problem, Christ's payment, and our pardon. Let's walk through these and I want to uh, spend a little less time talking and a little more time reading Scripture. So uh, our first point here about God's person is that the greatness and holiness of God is beyond imagining. The greatness and holiness of God is beyond imagining. One of the reasons I love Wesley's hymns, I love Luther's hymns, I love John Newton's hymns, these old almost ancient hymns, is because they recognize the vast, majestic, powerful, fearful God that we serve. You can't sing a Wesley hymn and not realize that we serve a big, big God. The creator of all things. Nothing exists apart from Him. 
He is so great that when the Bible says, fear God, we get all freaked out about that. Oh, no, you don't want to be afraid of God. God, Listen, it's not really a command to work up some sort of reverence for God. It is a command to acknowledge reality. If you have ever encountered God, the only logical response is overwhelming terror. That's what happens every single time God is encountered in Scripture. Every time. That's what happens when humans encounter angels unless those angels come in disguise. But when they come in their native form, if you will, dudes are freaked. There is no way. Every time you see John has an angel come to him and he falls on his face to worship the angel. Oh my goodness, I'm overwhelmed. Angel says, man, I'm created just like you. I'm not God. Don't worship me. This happens in the Old Testament. It happens in the New Testament. Fearing God means we understand. It's kind of like trying to work up some sort of a a real reverence for a train coming down the track while you're standing in the middle of it. There's no reason for you to think about, I should really revere this train. I should have a, a very proper view of it. The only response is, I'm about to get crushed. I better get off this track. This is what it's like to encounter the holy, omnipotent God who speaks the universe into existence. And we think he's the big guy upstairs. Jesus is my homeboy. He's my buddy. Like God is some sort of a doddering old cosmic grandfather who just wants to give us presents, pull a quarter out from behind your ear, you know, all these fun things. Let's take a look at who God really is. The greatness and holiness of God is beyond imagining. Let's start by reading Psalm 96. I was laughing this morning as I was putting the final touches on, on this outline. And I told Stacy when she came in to practice with the band, people have no idea how many verses have to get cut out of this to get this sermon down to the three and a half hours you'll have today. <laughs> I'll try to go a little less than that. <clears throat> Psalm 96. If you're not sure where the Psalms are, they're right in the middle of your Bible. In fact, I forgot to mention earlier, if you don't have a Bible of your own, you'll want one. Because we're going to spend some time in God's Word. We're a Bible teaching church, amen? amen. So we're going to get into God's Word. You want to be able to have it in your hands. So if you don't have one, we have some in the back. Just put your hand up and Michael will make sure that you've got one. Because you want to be able to, to read God's Word, not just hear what some old bald dude has to say. Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise His name. Proclaim His salvation day after day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. Now, do you, do you get a sense of majesty from the, just the, the, the excitement that the psalmist has? As he's writing these words, as he's singing these words, there's an exaltation in the exaltation of God. He is exuberant as he lifts up the Lord. But notice why. 
as we get into the characteristics, the description of God that he gives. For great is the Lord. Now great, you know, we might think of great as, wow, that's really cool. That's really awesome. Yeah. Great is really in the true sense of awesome. It's a bigness, a vastness. Not just a, oh, that's kind of cool. Hey, that's great. That's a really great candy bar. No, not like that. God is great. He is weighty and huge and immense and bigger than you can imagine. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Maybe that just rolled past you. The Lord made the heavens. Somebody say hallelujah. This is a God worthy of praise. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and glory are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Don't come empty-handed. This is the God of the universe. All of the Old Testament was designed, the old sacrifices were designed to give us a picture of the difference between God and us. And you dare not come with dirt on your hands. And you dare not come without an offering. How much has changed for us today? Hopefully by the end of today we'll be able to understand a little bit of why it's different. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. I would underline that term because that's just the coolest term in the world. The, the splendor of His holiness. His holiness is like glowing. Like if you're, if you're writing this out on the, word, on the paper and all of a sudden the word holiness just starts to glow on the fire, just ignites. It's that kind of an imagery that you should have in your mind. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant. And everything in them. <clears throat> then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord. For He comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness. And the peoples in His truth. Creation will rejoice when the judgment comes. That's kind of a strange picture. This idea of fearing the Lord is something that God gives to created human beings and the angels, animate beings, not trees and dirt. And yet, we see that the trees and the dirt will rejoice when God judges. When God passes judgment on all wickedness, He will do so with equity. Nobody gets special favors. Not even Israel. That's one of the things that, that the prophets make very clear. And Jesus brings it out. Paul brings it out. 
Israel doesn't get an advantage just because you have a, a label on your door that says, I belong to God. What happens is God judges everyone equally based on your holiness, your perfection. Are you up to God's standard or not? That's a pretty good reason to fear the Lord. There are so many more things that I would love to read for you, but I'm going to have you turn back to the left to 1 Samuel chapter 2. As I do this, some of you know my, my fingers have a hard time going past Job because I want to read it so badly. But we won't have time. I will talk about it, but we won't read it. In 1 Samuel, excuse me, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we see uh, what some of you may recognize as Hannah's prayer. Uh, Hannah was a godly woman. Uh, she was in a... a, a uh, she was a sister wife. <laughs> so, I was trying really hard not to say that, but I couldn't stop. So uh, she's married to a man who has two wives. One, one wife, not Hannah, has children. That's a great blessing in the society. Hannah has none. He loves her very, very much, and yet she feels unfulfilled. She feels like God has not blessed her, so she prays for a son. And in her prayer, notice how she speaks of the Lord. Starting with verse 1, Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. That horn is a symbol of strength in the Hebrew. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows... And by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken. Those who stumbled are armed, with, are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food. But those who were hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children. But she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and He exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them He has set the world he will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. If we were to take some time and go through the Psalms, just the Psalms, there's so many more. If you go through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, we'll see prayers and Psalms that, that will describe God's activity. 
If you go back to the, to the Torah, to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and we see the ancient history, the history primeval, if you will, in Genesis, and then the history of Israel as it comes along, we see this picture of a God who is beyond imagining. His greatness is unfathomable. His holiness is beyond what the human mind can comprehend because we don't understand holiness. We don't understand purity. Everything that we do seems to have a, a limit, seems to have a certain taint. Our best motives, as Bing Crosby would say, have a little larceny operating in them. Everybody's got an angle. Even when we think we're doing good. But God's not like that. I'm taking a little more time on this point than I will on some of the others. And there's a reason for that. I think we spend a lot of time talking about the gospel, especially here at Real Life. We spend a lot of time talking about Jesus. And I think during the Christmas season, we throw his name around a lot. We talk about Jesus as the reason for the season. And then we proceed to forget about him as soon as we get done saying it or putting it on our bumper sticker or our t-shirt or our ugly sweater. We love love in our society. We love the picture of a warm, gentle, gracious God. And we should. But if we don't understand before that, that the nature of God is entirely other, that He is beyond, that He is not like us, and we only get part of the gospel. Before we can appreciate the Savior who came, we must understand our need for a Savior to come. And it begins by understanding God's person. The greatness and holiness of God is beyond imagining. I'm, I'm going to sacrifice some other places because I just want you to see these passages. Turn back past the Psalms to the book of Isaiah. Not very far past the Psalms. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 6. If you've been at real life for very many years, you may have this passage memorized by now. Which is why some of you, when you want to pretended I was going to pass it up, you were very skeptical. But I can't. Not if we're going to develop this idea. We have to understand God's person. What is He like? Who is He? The prophet Isaiah is prophesying to Israel, God's chosen people who have been in rebellion. God has finally had enough. And he says, okay, here's what's going to happen. God still keeps all His promises. Paul makes that clear even in the New Testament. God's not done with Israel, even though as a nation they no longer exist as this chosen Israel. Now we have political Israel, uh, not spiritual Israel. <clears throat> but as we see what God has, is doing, there was a time in Israel's history, I believe that we are essentially in that same part of Israel's history now, when because of their rejection of God as their king, they chose to go 
their own way rather than God's way, which by the, by the way is the definition of sin. That's what you and I do. We go our way. We do our thing instead of God's thing. That's what separates us. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Isaiah is called to prophesy destruction and doom to a people who are being banished. But he also has a ton of prophecies about what God will do next. Before he can go to be the messenger to God's people, just like we are exploring today, he has to understand who God is. Job goes through this same thing. At the end of the book of Job, having gone through everything that he does, being faithful, not sinning against God, he tells his friends, listen, I get all you're saying, but you're way off base. I haven't done anything wrong. And when God shows up, he'll set this right. God will defend me. And God shows up and says, Joe, sit down and shut up. You don't even know what you're talking about. And he begins to challenge Job. And Job says, you know what? Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm so out of line. I thought I knew what I was talking about, but I didn't. I had heard of you, but now my eyes have beheld you. Isaiah has to go through that experience now before he can become the messenger to Israel. Check it out. Starting with verse 1 of chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. So he, he, he's got this vision that God is giving him. Whether he's awake or asleep, I don't know. But God gives him a vision. And he reveals himself to Isaiah in this vision. And in the year that King Uzziah died, he sees the Lord seated on a throne. That symbol of sovereignty, of rule. That God is in charge, high and exalted. It's actually a, an elevated throne. It's lifted up to show that God is holy and beyond and other. And it says, the train of his robe filled the temple. That is a symbol of his majesty, his glory in that flowing robe that fills the temple. So let your mind take that in for a moment. The Lord is on a throne that is elevated and high and lifted up. And the majestic flowing robes of His glory actually fill up the temple in this vision. Verse 2, above Him were seraph, seraphs, or seraphim, your translation may say. Seraphim is the plural of seraph. That term means burning ones. These are like, if I could use the term, fire angels. So imagine a being, a spiritual being that is so fantastic, so awe-inspiring that the only way to describe it is with fire. These burning ones are above flying around doing their thing. Check out the description. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. Doesn't look like the little, little pictures of angels we get on our Christmas cards, does it? With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. Only two of these wings are of practical use. The others are for humility. And they were calling to one another. This, by the way, is why Wesley didn't like the angels singing thing. They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts 
and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Now imagine a worship service like that. These massive, intense, burning angels whose voices shake the very foundation of the temple. And yet they're covering their faces and feet in humility before God. They have no sin. They're beyond what we can really picture, and yet they are awestruck by God. Notice Isaiah's reaction. This is when you get the person of God. When you encounter God and you see Him for who He is, the reaction that Isaiah has is the only logical reaction for any created being, particularly for a sinful human being. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. Another translation renders it, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This is the picture of the greatness and the holiness of God. Swing all the way to the back of the book to Revelation chapter 4. I promise we'll move faster through the other points. But I think we are woefully inadequate in our understanding of the holiness, the sovereignty, the majesty, the greatness of God. Revelation chapter 4. Keep wanting to cut this down. I don't know if I can. <laughs> let's, just cut, let's just cut to verse 8. Uh, verse 7. The first living creature, there are, there are four living creatures here worshiping. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Again, angelic spiritual beings that are so out there, so not like anything we can imagine. These are the best descriptions that John is able to give. Using human language that is finite and limited to describe things that are so outside of our experience. But verse 8 says, Each of the four living creatures had six wings. Sound familiar? Had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Those eyes symbolize, symbolize wisdom and knowledge. Day and night they never stop praying Holy, stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. That three-time repetition is to bring a completeness. When, when in Hebrew, they wanted to emphasize a, a concept or a word, it's just like in English <laughs> or in coaching. Ever notice how coaches say everything twice at least, right? So, get low, get low. Hustle, hustle, all the time. It's always repeating it. These angels are doing that. But the three time, that's a special meaning. It's not just emphasized, it's hyper-emphasized. God is so holy. He is beyond holy. And they never stop. 
Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they were created and have their being. Amen and amen. In Exodus 3.14, I think your, uh, I think your uh, program folder says 3.15. It's Exodus 3.14. God reveals himself to Moses with his personal name. He's been revealed. It's not new. He's revealed himself before. But now as Moses encounters him, he says, When I go, who am I going to say sends me? And God says, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent me. There is a, a beingness. I'm making up words now because I don't have enough words to cover God. I am. In his being, God is the uncaused cause, the ever existent one. No beginning, no end. I am. And what's more, he says, I am that I am, or I am who I am. I am for my own cause, for my own purpose, and I don't have to explain myself to you. That's the sovereignty of God. Once we begin to wrap our minds around this, once we begin to actually see that God is not who we thought He was, then we're ready to begin because just like Isaiah, when you and I actually encounter God, when we begin to get a picture of who He really is, our arrogance begins to fade. If you still think that you somehow are a good person, then you have not met God. You have not seen Him. I'm not even talking about being saved by Him or knowing Jesus. You haven't even known Him at all. You don't know who he is if you think you're pretty good. You might be better than Bob or Kathy. You might be better than Brad or Erica. You might be better than me. That's not that hard. Shoot, I can't stand myself half the time. But you're not basing the value of good on any of us. Good is defined by the character of God. So the question of whether God is good is kind of silly and moot. The definition of good comes from the character of God. We have nothing to offer. And this creates an issue for us. God created us for a purpose. We just read in Revelation 4.11, excuse me, you are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Props falling down. Everything that has been created was created by God, for God, for His pleasure, for His glory. That brings us to our next point about our purpose. We exist to glorify God in intimacy with Him. 
This is true of every human being, not just of those who have chosen to follow Christ. All of us were created with a purpose, and we exist to glorify God in intimacy with Him. Turn all the way to the book of Genesis. We're in Revelation now. Let's go all the way back to Genesis. We're going to go to the very first chapter. It's short, but I want you to see it, not just hear it from my lips. You may recognize Genesis, the book of beginnings. That's what Genesis means. That's why it's in the beginning. So uh, as we see this first chapter, in the first two chapters, uh, God is creating everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when God created the heavens and the earth, it was void and dark, and then God gives shape to it. And then God takes what He gave shape to and He creates life. And then chapter 2 specifically kind of goes back into that story where God created humanity, and now he says, okay, here's the specifics. Not the scientific specifics, that's not what he's trying to tell us, but that God personally handcrafted man. And from man, God personally handcrafted woman. Check out verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1, Genesis 1. 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. In case you were wondering, humanity does have a responsibility to creation. We were created with the intention of caring for the planet. We have an ecological mandate, if you will. It's one of the things that makes farming such a beautiful profession. That's our job. It was before sin entered, our job was to take care of the planet on God's, as God's stewards. So in verse 27, God created man in his own image. He's created everything else already. He creates man specifically, only man, only humanity created in God's image. And when it says man here, yes, it is man and woman, mankind, humankind. I forget sometimes it's 2018, I have to remind you of that. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Specifically, it says male and female, he created them. God intends you to be exactly who he made you to be. God blessed them, told them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. But understand, in this passage, we see the purpose of God in creating humanity in His image. We bear the likeness of God. We are made for relationship with Him. Our purpose is to glorify Him. To make God smile, if you will. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Where in the world's Colossians? It's in the middle of the New Testament, so you're going to be about four-fifths of the way through your Bible, not quite to Revelation. If you get that far, you went too far. If you've been with us in Luke, it's a little to the right of Luke, about halfway between what's left after Luke and the end. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians... Colossians 1, verse 16. 
you may recognize this as being very similar to what we see in Revelation. Paul writes to the Colossian church, speaking of Christ in verse 15, he calls Jesus the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Then speaking of Christ as God, in verse 16 he says, For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. We were created for Him. You and I were not created so that we could make money. We were not created so that we could get married and have children. These are all things that we do, and there's a purpose in them. But our purpose, our reason for being, is to make God smile. To reflect who He is in who we are. To bear His image. But we have a problem. Our problem is that sin permanently and irrevocably separates us from God. Sin permanently and irrevocably separates us from God. It's a permanent separation. There's no end to it. No, no fixing it. It's irrevocable. There's nothing that you and I can do to change that. Flip all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. If you're not sure where it is, it's two chapters after Genesis 1. I studied my math. <clears throat> I'm not going to read all this, but I want you to see it. Here in Genesis chapter 3, almost immediately, now we don't know how much time has elapsed. I would estimate that there's a huge amount of time that has elapsed at this point, but that's speculation only. Almost at the outset, God has created humanity we are in perfect intimacy with God. And the description at the, at the very end of chapter 2, notice verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is not an issue of whether they were wearing clothes. That's obviously what it's saying. The, the point, the issue, is the no shame. There's nothing between them. There's nothing between them and God. There's vulnerability. There is intimacy. It is perfect. They're not sitting around giggling, oh, you're naked, you know, none of that. Not like, you know, middle schoolers when somebody gets pantsed. It's not, not, not that kind of an idea. A lot like a little baby running around the house naked who has no clue. They know they don't have clothes on, but they have no clue that it's inappropriate. If you or I do that, yeah, just want to say we're not going to do that at church. So please, please don't forget, be clothed. We are called to perfect intimacy with God. They are naked and feel no shame. But what happens here in Genesis chapter 3 is that sin enters. You know the story. The serpent shows up. And they get deceived. Check it out in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild... Let me try this again. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did he? Anybody remember? You remember the story, right? Did God say they couldn't eat from any tree? No, of course he didn't. Now, some of you may not be familiar with the story. Maybe that's why you're not answering. Because you're not quite sure. Is this a trick question? It is a trick question. Satan's trying to trick Eve 
the woman, the representative of all humanity at this point. Adam, Eve, all of us in them. And he says, hey, Eve, did God say you can't eat from any of these things? Is he really that much of a killjoy? Is he really trying to hold back that much from you? She's like, no, 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 come on, man. He didn't say that. God said you could eat from anything except for this one tree. The woman said to the serpent in verse 2, we may eat fruit from the trees uh, in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit, <clears throat> excuse me, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. God didn't say that. God said don't eat from it. Eve said don't touch it. Now maybe Adam told her that. Eve, I don't want you getting close to it, right? That's a bad tree. Stay away. God said don't eat it. I don't want you to touch it. So maybe she's conflating what Adam said with what God said. How many of you know men don't make the rules? God does. God makes the rules. But Eve, thinking she's getting closer to what God said, is still adding to the Word of God. Whether we add or subtract from God's Word, we are off the line. If we do, we'll die. Verse 4, you will not surely die said the serpent to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Man, I don't have time to go into this, but this is such a huge verse. This is pregnant with theological weight here. God is the only autonomous, omnipotent being in the universe and Satan is telling them, do it. <laughs> or... Or like Coke said in the 70s, try it, you'll like it, right? We're going to go through this. Some of you might remember the Mikey commercial from Life Cereal. Give it to Mikey, he hates everything, right? So God says, don't do this. And Satan says, come on, he's playing with you. If you do this, then you'll get all the knowledge and understanding that God's holding back from you. We've been told those kind of lies too. The Bible doesn't really mean what it says. The Bible can't really understand how the world was created. It must be something else. It couldn't be that God just said it and it happened. It couldn't be that God intends gender and sex as he creates people. It couldn't be that God commands that something that makes me happy is wrong. We've been given all these lies. It's the same as what the serpent was saying then. The same thing that Israel did. He's saying, really, God's way has some flaws. We need an update. We need to rethink this. And the call is for us to do our thing instead of God's thing. If our purpose is to glorify God in intimacy with Him, and we do our thing, and it shreds that, as you know it does, she gives some to Adam, Adam eats it, and immediately they both recognize that they're naked. They already knew they didn't have clothes on. They weren't stupid before this. But they were innocent. And now they're not. Satan was telling the truth, right? Their eyes were opened. Sort of. Every good lie has a little truth in it. Their eyes were opened. And now they see that they're dying. 
Up until this moment, there was no death, there was no disease, there was no sickness, there was no shame, there was no guilt, there was no separation from God. They were naked and unashamed. They were perfectly intimate with one another and with the Father. And now, from this one choice, everything changes. Everything is cursed. And it has been that way ever since. It's permanent and it's irrevocable. Jump ahead to verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and, her, and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That will be a really big verse for us next week as we get into this again. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. She was already having children, but without pain. Ladies, can you identify with that? How, how cool is that? Labor without pain? or without significant pain, greatly increased. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you. But, by the way, don't, I, I, I don't want to hang on this, but I want you to notice that the difficulty in relationship between men and women did not exist before this moment. It was only in this moment when sin enters that now the rule of the husband becomes a yoke. It becomes a difficulty for her and for him. Prior to this, it's all good. Everything is smooth. Everything is how it's supposed to be. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, and to, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Work came before sin, but work was a joy and a pleasure before sin. After sin it becomes a burden. It becomes a toil. We were already farming. We were already taking care of the planet. Sin makes everything harder. Permanently and irrevocably separates us from God. Let's jump to Romans chapter 3. Paul is quoting from Isaiah, and it's a reflection of so many thoughts throughout the Scriptures. But we're going to jump ahead to Romans not quite to Colossians, but it is in the New Testament, just a little bit to the left of Colossians. <clears throat> We're going to start with chapter 3, verse 9. But before we do, keep your finger there and turn back a page to Romans chapter 1. You might want to jot this down in your program. I should have included it for you and I didn't. Paul is setting the stage for the rest of his letter to the Roman church by laying out the human condition. <clears throat> and it starts very badly. Verse 18 of chapter 1. The wrath of God. Everybody say the wrath of God. Is that fun to say? Does that make you feel good? Does it give you warm fuzzies? Boy, I just love God so much. 
I, I feel so inspired when I come to church. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's not specific men. That's the human race. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their, thank, their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice how this parallels exactly what we've been talking about. There is a great God who has made us for a purpose. And yet, we have done our thing instead of His thing, and therefore we are incapable of fulfilling that purpose. And His wrath is poured out on humanity because of it. Jump to 3, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Speaking here of those who, uh, who have had the Scriptures and have uh, grown up in the faith. Are we better off? Do we have an advantage, another rendering says? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, here he quotes Isaiah, There is no one righteous. Who's righteous? No. Not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. Here's the foundation of all of those things. There's no fear of God before their eyes. They don't know Him. We may not all be guilty of every individual sin, but we are all guilty of doing our own thing. And that's where all those other fruits come from. Turn to the book of Ephesians to the right just slightly here. I'm going to try to kick it into gear because I'm a little behind schedule, so I want to catch up a little. Ephesians chapter 2. You may want to mark this. We'll be back in Ephesians in a little bit. Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> Look at the first three verses. Remember what Paul just wrote to the Romans. Nobody's righteous. The wrath of God is being poured out. Because we've suppressed the truth of God. We've darkened our own minds by sin. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, and we don't have the fear of the Lord, then we don't have the wisdom and knowledge. See how the logic works? Notice what he says. As for you, same guy that wrote to the Romans, now writing to the church in Ephesus. To the church. Like us. Right? The people who know stuff, supposedly. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, 
in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That's harsh. If you came here to feel good today, this is not the verse that's going to help with that. We have some, so don't despair. Don't give up yet. Every single one of us is a sinner. Every sinner is dead. Not sick, dead. It's not that we're on the wrong side of God. We've irritated Him a little bit. We're, we're in the doghouse with God. We are dead. Physically alive, spiritually dead, every one of us, by our nature and our choice. We are dead people. That's why we do dead things. And it's been that way. And we can't fix it. The entire purpose of the Old Testament, without having to walk you through this, uh, the book of Hebrews lays this out pretty well for us. Everything in the Old Testament is to give us a picture of why we can't fix this. Sin happens in three, chapter Genesis 3. Then we see the law before the law is given to Moses. The law is present in the right and wrong of, of speaking to God directly. And sin keeps on happening. Then the law is given to clarify and sin keeps on happening. And the sacrifices are given so that we can see the ugliness of our sin and see that there is a price to pay. Only, only death can cover for sin. Sin brings death. That was the promise in Eden. If you disobey, you'll die. Satan says, ah, not so much. He played with them. You didn't physically die. You spiritually died. And you began to physically die. There was no decay before that. They were literally ageless. That's not a makeup commercial. That was reality. But now, because of sin, every single one of us starts out dead in sin. When you look in the mirror, if you are not in Christ... If you're just relying on your own flesh, your own ability, your own religion, your own background, your own knowledge, your own goodness or will, when you look in the mirror, you are looking at a corpse. This is our problem. Keep, keep Ephesians marked. We're going to be staying more New Testament the rest of the way here. But I want you to see Romans 6. Actually, you don't have to turn there. We'll turn there in a minute. Romans 6.23 Hopefully many of you are familiar with it. The wages of sin is death. The problem with paying for your sin is that once you do, you're dead. So you're done. How do you pay for your crime if it brings capital punishment? You die. Do you get to make amends after that? No, because you're dead. That's how it works. That is where we are. Permanently, irrevocably separated from God. It's inescapable. 
But God has a plan from the beginning, and that plan is Christ's payment. You may remember in Genesis chapter 3, when he speaks to the serpent and curses the serpent, he says, there will be a seed of this woman who will come. And yeah, you're going to wound him. You're going to bite his heel. But he'll crush your head. Christ is our serpent crusher. Jesus came to rescue us from inescapable destruction. Jesus came to rescue us from inescapable destruction. You don't have to turn there because it's printed for you in your program. I will turn there because I don't have your printed program. But Isaiah chapter 53 speaks of this promised Messiah. And notice what he says. We're talking about the Savior who came to rescue us from our inescapable destruction. Start with verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he did not open his mouth. Jump down to verse 10, uh, verse 19. Sorry, my eyes are bad. No, it is 10. I told you my eyes were bad. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Turn to the book of Romans, please. Bible pages are very thin. From here we're going to just read the entire book of Romans. We'll skip ahead to Romans chapter 3. We read the hard part earlier that no one is righteous. We all, we all, we all have gone astray. But good news comes to us. Take a look at verse 24 and following. Well, let's go back to verse 21 just to connect it with what we just talked about. Now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. 
this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew or Gentile or whatever background you're from. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've established that. that that's our problem. But, notice, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. It's God's grace. You didn't earn it. It was paid for by Christ. That's why we give Christmas presents, by the way. It's not just to express your love to one another. It's because we have received a gift paid for by someone else who loved us so much that they paid the ultimate price that we could never afford to pay. All we have to do is receive it and unwrap it. So every time you give or receive a Christmas present, think of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He paid it all. You just have to receive it. We're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Christ presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement. In other words, paying for us in, in our place. Through faith in His blood, He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Turn a couple of pages to chapter 6, verse 23 that we talked about previously. You'll see it. It's clear. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift, but the gift. Everybody say, but the gift. But the gift, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Paying the price for my sin and your sin, Jesus died and rose again. We have to act on this. We have to receive it. And this is where we find our pardon. Jesus makes the payment he pays the price, but we have to take hold of it. He's already got the acquittal papers signed. We're done. But if we don't go show up for our court date, then we can't take advantage of the acquittal. We have to participate here. Everyone who trusts in Christ alone has eternal life. This is big. There is no other path. In the book of John, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Paul says, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. It is only Jesus. There is no other answer. It's not religion. It's not being part of a church. It's not being a good person. It's not trying to balance out your bad deeds with more good deeds. None of that will work. We are permanently and irrevocably separated, but paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. 
So if we take hold of that and receive this by faith, everyone who trusts in Christ alone has eternal life. Say that line with me. Everyone who trusts in Christ alone has eternal life. John 3.16, you all know. For God so loved the world. While we were still sinners, God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him, trusts in Him, opens the present, will not perish. Will not be eternally separated from God. Jesus breaks the penalty. He pays it. He crushes it. He destroys it. Sin is done in us. But has eternal life. I asked you to mark Ephesians chapter 2. Let's go back there. Really over time, I've got to wrap this up. This will be the last verse that we look up. Um, you've got them written down there. You can check them out for yourself. The last passage is Ephesians 2. How do we receive this? How do we get this? Notice in verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved. Grace is unearned favor. You don't deserve, you can't deserve, you never could deserve for God to look upon you kindly. Yet He does. That's grace. We deserve wrath. We have earned death. And yet God loves us. That's grace. For by grace you are saved. Through faith. That's how we receive the gift. We open the present that His grace has purchased for us. And even this faith is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works. Not by works of righteousness that we've done, it says in Titus, but according to His mercy He saves us so that no one can boast. Everyone who trusts in Christ alone has eternal life. How do we do that? Romans 10, 8, and 9 says that if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths, that we'll be saved. No one who comes to Christ gets turned away. If you confess with your mouth that He is the Lord, you can't hide it, or He's not really your Lord. He's not your Master, if you're hiding, pretending that, oh, I don't really know him, I'm ashamed of Jesus. Nope, forget about it. You don't know him. You haven't gotten it yet. You haven't understood. If you've encountered God, and that terror has been replaced with joy because you recognize that Jesus paid the price to make you right with God, how could you possibly, how could you possibly not speak of it? I'm not telling you you've got to go preach sermons. But how many, how many Michigan fans you got here? Wow, not very many. We, we got three Michigan? Seriously. Is there anybody that was too embarrassed to raise your hand because you got spanked by Ohio State? Spanked. Ridiculously. Horribly spanked. I'm a Michigan fan, too. How does that tell you? How many of you are Irish fans, Notre Dame fans? Yeah, so you all are excited because Notre Dame's winning, right? Michigan just got spanked. If we're willing to speak about such foolish things as sports teams, 
then how dare we not get that excited about Jesus Christ? He died for us. If you and I are more excited about Notre Dame or Michigan or the Bears or the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or anything else than we are about Jesus Christ, then we don't know him. We have a need for a Savior. I don't like to get all this fired up, but man, we got to get it. We have to get it. This is our pardon. And it's more. It's more than this. Jump, ahead, jump up farther in the chapter to verse 4. You remember that we read that we were all dead, right? We were all dead in Christ, or before Christ, but check out verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. In Christ Jesus. Everything here is in Christ Jesus, isn't it? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you've been saved. John 10.10 says that I've come that they might have life. And life to the full. Depending on your translation, it might say life abundant. This isn't some passive, weak life. All the riches of heaven are yours if you are in Christ. And death and all the misery of hell is yours if you are not in Christ. It is that simple. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. That's what it's about. There is nothing else. I would like to apologize for taking up so much of your time today if this were not as important as it is. Why does this matter? Because it's life. All of sin and fall short. All die as our default. But this is our life hack, our reboot, our escape, our freedom. There is no other path. We needed a Savior. Jesus came to save us because we could not save ourselves. What difference does it make in my daily living, in my daily walk? As I, as I go out of this place, then what? How does this impact me? Man, if you don't know already, it feels good to be forgiven. Amen? If you have encountered God and you've encountered your own sin and you recognize the reality that hell is your destiny, nothing feels better than to know that you're not going to hell. Except to know that you're going to heaven. To know that heaven actually has already begun in your life. That Jesus came to give you life not just after you physically die, but beginning now, you in Christ are spiritually alive. In a life that never ends. It lasts forever. The life Jesus offers is abundant and free. No more slavery to sin or to the lie that I must or can work hard enough or be good enough. No more fears of blowing it too badly for God. No more guilt. No more shame for my past. Jesus paid it all. He took my sin and gave me his righteousness. And in him I am fully adopted as God's child. Co-heirs with Jesus himself. I have a new identity. 
finally free to live out my purpose and please God. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. God is displeased with everything in your life if you're not in Christ. Isaiah says, in that same passage that Paul quoted, all of our righteousness, our best stuff, is like filthy rags. Bloody, soiled, disgusting rags. That's the best you've got on your own. No more of that. Jesus paid for all of it. And now I can please God. But I have to take hold of this tremendous offer of clemency. The gift is paid for, but I must receive it. The offer of mercy, of amnesty, is already on the table, but I must come before the judge to embrace it. And then nothing can ever truly be the same again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we celebrate what has been done for us, it is with a sense of profound awe and humility and tragedy. Lord, we recognize that you gave us perfection and we spit in your eye. God, help us now to realize that this is not about tricks. It's not about religious hoops. Shoot, it's not even about perfect doctrine. It's just about Jesus. That you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were still sinners, dead to you, enemies, Christ died for us. You sent us a Messiah to do what we couldn't, to pay what we owed because we owed more than we could ever pay. Thank you for the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.